even my kids when they read my New York Times articles they're like dad like why do you always deal with these difficult topics it's because I can't ignore them and sometimes when you don't when, when you don't come from them it gives you more space to ignore them Issa McCulley comes from those spaces, and he feels called to interrogate the discomfort in our public conversation. The New York Times opinion writer wrote on September 12th in an essay titled The Half-Truth of America's Past Greatness, how in the 1990s, before heading from Huntsville, Alabama to Jackson, Mississippi, his mother gave him dire instructions not to get gas or stop in small towns along the route out of fear for his safety. That story is recounted in his new memoir, How Far to the Promised Land, in which the ordained minister and associate professor of New Testament at Wheaton College tells his family's story across generations against the backdrop of America's history on race and religion in the American South. The book begins with a story of loss when his father is killed in a traffic accident. McCulley is asked to deliver a eulogy, but it's for a man he did not know. As he sets out to honor that commitment, he discovers untold chapters of his family's history that gives context to his past and present. Issa McCulley, welcome to Inspired by Interfaith Voices, where we explore the beliefs shaping our world. Thank you for joining me. I don't think you've been on our program before. Thank you. This is my first time. Thank you for inviting me. I'm really excited. How far to the promised land? It details your lifelong journey to try to make sense of all the things that have shaped you and the various struggles that you have endured. Why did you write this book now? Well, my father died in 2017 on a trucking trip in California, far from everybody that he knew and that he loved. But when he was in our lives, when I was a child, he had actually abandoned us. And he had been kind of estranged for us for a long time. And when he had been around, he had been abusive. He had issues with drugs and alcohol. And so even when he was around, his presence was complicated. And in 2017, I'm an adult at that point, um, he had died. And I was in a place where people say we're supposed to be. I had escaped the neighborhood that had shaped me. I was in the middle class, had a job. I was working as a professor and things were good. My family asked me to do the eulogy for someone who I didn't actually know very well. Me and my father, during the entirety of my childhood, we had like no real conversations about anything of substance. And so anytime you ever heard a eulogy, you have to learn about the person whom you're speaking about. And one of my other careers is that I'm, I'm an ordained minister. So I had to begin to do the process of learning about his life. And when I began learning about his life, it wasn't separated from my own life, my own experiences. So returning to understand him sent me back into my childhood. And what I began to realize, the more I began to research his eulogy and learn about his story, it turned into a, a journey to learn the entire story of my family's life. And because I didn't know my father, I didn't know much about his extended family. Mm. And that that narrative ends up going from like Jim Crow South dealing with my great grandmother who was a tenant farmer and a midwife 
all the way up through the crack epidemic in my childhood in the 90s. And I realized this isn't a story simply about a man who passed away. It's a story about Black people in the South trying to make a life for themselves. And one of the things about being Black in the South is all of American history is like, is, is dumped in your lap. What do you mean by that? Explain that. So everyone knows about Jim Crow. Everybody knows about Jim Crow and the things that happened during Jim Crow. But my, my great-grandmother and my grandmother and my grandfather on both sides of my family, they were actual tenant farmers. My grandfather, Theodore, tells a story of um, him starting on a tenant farm when he was four years old, picking cotton in the 1940s with his, with his family. And they said that he was paid 60-40. That 60% of the uh, money from all of the profits from the, from the farm went to the white landowner. And out of that 40%, my grandfather's family had to pay for the fee. They had to buy all of the resources. And every year, no matter how hard they work, at the end of the year, the person would say, you just, you just broke even. Mm. And so when you start talking about the South, which is where kind of like anti-Black racism in some senses pushes down the hardest upon people. When you begin to tell a Black story in the South, all of American history is dumped on you. I'm there during the um, Reaganomics and the war on drugs. You know, my my family is impacted by the AIDS crisis that happens during the late 80s and early 90s. And so all of these things that, that you read about in history books are actually a part of the narrative of my family. And in each case, you see successes and failures in this struggle to, to, to be more than, than we are. If I can say a second about Swanee as it relates to all of this, one of the shocking things that, I, that I've noticed when I got to the University of the South is that I thought that everybody who went to college crawled through the mud to get there like I did. Mm. You shared something that I don't want to let go of, that American history that we read, when you experience it through the eyes of a young Black man living in Huntsville, Alabama, coming of age in the 80s and 90s, and gathering the stories, gathering the names, gathering the struggles, that it complicates and expands the paragraph that so many young people today are going to encounter in a textbook. Can I say something about that? So 1954, Brown versus Board of Education. I remember when I was in high school, I, I saw the picture where they're sitting on the steps and they're opening up the newspaper that says Brown Board of Education and the daughter is seeing the school is being integrated. So I, in my brain, I was like, oh, so Brown versus Board of Education happens. They integrated the schools. Black people all over the South are celebrating. So I sit down with my grandfather and I say to him, because I, I sat down and interviewed members of my family and they're and the putting together their story. And I said to granddad, so how did you respond to Brown Bridge Board of Education? He said, I didn't even know the day that it passed. We didn't have a television. We didn't have a radio. And I didn't read the newspaper. Mm. So it passed like any other day. And he says, there was no integration. They used to let school out to... Um, so that, the, so that the black boys could go and girls to go pick the cotton. So during um, picking season, they would be out of school. So they were just out of school all of the time. And so by the time my grandfather got to high school, 
he was already 16 or 17 years old. And so he has to drop out of school, even though he was a straight A student, because he was getting old and his family needed him to work. So he never experiences the benefits of Brown Board of Education. He never does. My mother, who starts school much later, mm-hmm. and she is the first one to experience integrated classes. But once again, it's one thing to say the class of the integrated in my hometown in like the late 60s, early 70s. But what does that integration actually look like? Do you think that all of a sudden they started educating these these Black kids, like they educated everyone else? No. And so even in an integrated context, my mother experiences tremendous racism. She tells me this story of this one time where this white boy in her high school invites a Black girl to the prom, which is like this big deal. It never happened. And so all of her friends are excited and all of this stuff. And it turns out that it was just a cruel joke. Mm. He never intended to take her. And then he kind of tells her before. And that almost leads to a riot at her school because the Black people are so upset that they use this girl as a, a, a tool of mockery. And so how far to the promised land, it's, it's one thing to read about American history. It's another thing to see it lived out in the context of your family's life. Where does faith fit into this for your family? Yeah, one of the other things that that I think happens a lot when we tell these stories, these kind of race stories in America, we can kind of make them one-dimensional. Talk to me about how faith, your faith, plays a role and weaves into this story. Yeah, I think that one of the things that, that I try to do in this story is complicate the role of faith as not simply miraculous intervention where God shows up and he fixes all of the problems or God is this this way of dealing with disappointment while we hope for a better future. For for my family and different members of my family, God wasn't a way to escape the trauma. He was the way to survive the trauma. And when you have so many things seemingly set against you, the question is, who do you turn to for help? And going back through my family's history, for, for most, of my, my, most of my family's history, the, the hope that we've had, despite the things that were said against us, was God. And one of the things that I also tried to do is to say that like God isn't simply the solution to like white supremacy. God is, was, for us, a help in the context of the damage that we sometimes did to each other. God wasn't simply the solution to white supremacy. God sometimes helped us from the damage that we did to each other. That, that it's not just the people external to poor communities that are cruel, but the cruelty exists within our communities as well. Mm-hmm. And then how do you deal with family members who are, who are harmful and who do things that make it hard my great-grandfather, Bud, whose narrative is recorded in, in the book, is abusive to um, my great-grandmother. And it's actually the Black church pastor. This is, this is the 1920s, so this is like really courageous. He steps in and says, if you will leave him, we can help you. But she had six children. Hmm. And she couldn't imagine um, living without 
the help of this man who was often very abusive towards her. But in the end, it was her faith that allows her to break free from that relationship and gives her the courage and the strength and the resolve to create a different future for herself than simply being abused by this man for, for her entire life. How did you how did you react when you heard that story? What did you take away from it? One of the things that happens when you have enough space to reflect on it is that there's a tendency to be disappointed with God, to be honest, if we want to be honest, right? You look at the long history of slavery in America yeah. and you say, well, if God was so good, why didn't God end slavery earlier? Or you see the things that happen um, to my great-grandmother. What kind of God allows a woman to endure these things? And it's kind of the thing to do when you get to university and you get a little bit of money to have these kind of studied um, intellectual objections to God's goodness based upon the problem of evil. And what really challenged me was this notion that maybe my great-grandmother knew something that I didn't. Maybe her testimony matters. In other words, maybe she was someone who wrestled with that exact same question, not in the abstract, but in the concrete reality of suffering. Mm -hmm. And the fact that someone who had actually suffered and actually been through those things, who then says to me, God can help you. I felt challenged to take that claim seriously. In other words, if, if there is a faith, you talked about earlier, like my own work, if there is a faith that I find that demands my allegiance, it's Black faith when America was really horrible. It's Black faith during slavery and Black faith during Jim Crow. Like what, what kind of experiences with God that I don't have access to because I wasn't there, did they encounter that stuck with them despite the things that they experienced? And so for me to be separate from that in the comfort of my air-conditioned home, to easily cast that aside because I've read Foucault or something, felt to me inadequate. The title of the book, what were you trying to accomplish with that? How far to the promised land? I grew up without a father. And when I had a father who was around, he was um, often abusive and violent. And when you have that kind of experience, at least to me, it simplified my dreams. I had this question in my head. What would it be like if there was a son? Because I was a boy, right? I couldn't imagine. I didn't imagine other people. What would it be like if there was a son who had a dad who really loved him? How would that shape how that child understood himself and his place in the world. How would a woman's life be different if when the person who came home to her was 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 kind and generous and loving? And so for me, How Far to the Promised Land speaks to all the people around me who are struggling to get there. It's not actually simply about my journey to arrive in that place. It's about all the people who are around me who are in varying degrees of success in finding that place. And it's the and what I was trying to get at, there's a certain beauty in every human life and the in the attempt to become something. Because some people say that only my story for my community matters because I make it a little bit further 
into what people might call success. But I really didn't want to consider everybody from my community as a cast off or even an object lesson that, to spur on me as the protagonist. What I really wanted to say is in each one of those lives in the South, across the generations in my family, their struggle to make a life for themselves reveals something important about the human experience and it reveals something important about America and how hard this country makes it for us to arrive in the promised land. Hmm. Initially, when I thought of the title, I wanted to say that this country is so broken that it can never be a kind of promised land for anyone, but it's going into a different direction. One of the things about writing is sometimes the stories tell themselves, you must let them unfold the way that they want to. You grew up at a time in which faith was a really central part of how you made sense of survival We live in a world in which when there's somebody who emerges from a context that is filled with struggle and succeeds, that they become this icon of, oh, this is what can happen. And what is lost is that they're not the rule. They're genuinely the exception. Esau made it. You can too. Do you ever worry? Yeah. Do you ever worry that that you're setting up you're being used to sell something that lets others off the hook for confronting the systems that make it incredibly difficult for average folk to do well. You asked me why did I write How Far to the Promised Land? Yeah. It's because I felt myself getting trapped in that very narrative, that people were seeing my life as somehow indicative of what is possible in the United States. I call it like the Hunger Games. We love our memoirs where we know where the protagonist is going to end up because they got to write the story. And so the only job of the reader is to kind of boo the villain and cheer on the the suffering poor kid until he emerges. But the truth is, I did not tell that story. And so How Far to the Promised Land is not a story about an exceptional kid who makes it to the middle class. It's a story about all the people that surrounds them and the ways that their lives are instructive about what America is. And so the reason I tell my grandfather's story is not as an object lesson or background to my own forward movement. It's to say, you need to see what America does to Black people. And are we comfortable with a country that requires this kind of exceptionalism? One of the things that that, that really shocked me, and this is true, when I got to college, I thought that everybody who got there, got there through grit and determination and fighting through everything. And I didn't know that you could just have a rich family. They could pay $45,000 in tuition and just go to college. And you were a C student in high school. And you could be a C student in college because you had a job waiting for you once you graduated, regardless of what happened. And I said, well, no, no, no. Success then for Black people is not a few exceptional kids who make it to university and make it to the middle class. Success for Black people, as I understand justice now, is the freedom to stumble around a bit and not to have every mistake be potentially catastrophic. And one of the things that I I try to get at in How Far to the Promised Land is how little room for error there is in poor Black spaces. Mm. And that what we actually demand of impoverished communities stuck in systems of, of oppression it's not what we demand for other people to arrive in the same place. 
And so I'm questioning exceptionalism. But the, one of the tricky parts is they don't allow the poor to write narratives that, that question exceptionalism. It's the responsibility of those who grew up poor to remember. My conversation with Issa McCulley, author of How Far to the Promised Land, continues after the break. You're listening to Inspired by Interfaith Voices. I'm Ambreen Khan, and we'll be back after this short break. Hi, friends. I hope you're enjoying the show so far. I just want to say thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being part of our community. I don't know if you know this, but we are on the air all the way from Richmond, Virginia to Ketchikan, Alaska, and in so many places in between. We're a national show, and we are a small and mighty team committed to bringing you stories and sounds from around the world that convey not only the diversity and the pluralism of our country, but the beliefs that are shaping our world, our politics, our culture, and the ideas that sustain us and inspire us to think about where we are going. And that brings me to this question. If you value us, if you enjoy listening and appreciate what you're hearing, I want to ask you to take a moment to consider becoming a sustaining member of Interfaith Voices or make a one-time donation at interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. That's interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. Thank you. And let's get back to the show. Welcome back. I'm Ambreen Khan, and you're listening to Inspired by Interfaith Voices. If you're just joining, this week my guest is Issa McCauley. His latest book, How Far to the Promised Land, was released on September 12th. McCauley enjoys a very middle-class life, as he tells it, married and living with his wife and four children in the suburbs of Chicago, where he works as an associate professor of New Testament at Wheaton College. But McCauley is not content just focusing on the everyday. In a world that's wrestling with racism, the resurgence of white supremacy, and growing income equality, McCulley has a lot to say, and he has a national platform. His commentary and essays appear not only in the New York Times, but The Atlantic, and religious outlets like Christianity Today. In his new memoir, he takes readers into his own family's story that begins back in Jim and Jane Crow South, He doesn't gloss over the difficult parts, the trauma, brokenness, and abuse that so many have struggled with. Before the break, he explains why telling that whole story is key to challenging the narrative of success that he has felt trapped by. Success then for Black people is not a few exceptional kids who make it to university and make it to the middle class. Success for Black people, as I understand justice now, is the freedom to stumble around a bit and not to have 
every mistake be potentially catastrophic. And one of the things that I that I try to get at in how far to the promised land is how little room for error there is in poor black spaces. Mm. And that what we actually demand of impoverished communities stuck in systems of oppression is not what we demand for other people to arrive in the same place. And so I'm questioning exceptionalism. But the, one of the tricky parts is they don't allow the poor to write narratives that, that, that question exceptionalism. It's the responsibility of those who grew up poor to remember. As I listen to what you're saying in all these different places, the question pops into my mind, what's driving Issa McCulley? Well, to be honest, I never planned on being anything public. I did a PhD in New Testament, which is the second half of the Bible for Christians. And I was working on this esoteric dissertation topic. And I had this moment where I said, I don't think anybody's ever going to read this book that I'm working on, which is true because you didn't invite me (laughs) onto your show to talk about that book. (laughs) Oh, that's true. That is very, very (laughs) true, sir. And I said, how is any of this stuff that I'm doing, this these kind of high level discussions of religion useful to the actual people who lived in my neighborhood and my mom. And so I said, I would work on my PhD in the mornings and in the evenings, I would come home, start writing just a personal blog. It was just so that I could say I'm doing some actual good in the world. And from that, um, someone reached out and said, will you join our group blog? And I said, sure, I'll do that. I didn't think anything of it. And then I did that for a little bit. And then Christianity Today invited me to start writing for them. And then after that, the Washington Post said, would you write for us? And I said, sure. And then the New York Times reached out to me and said, would you write for us? And I said, sure. So I never applied for any of these jobs. They just Mm -hmm. came to me and said, are you interested? Now, is it related to social media? At the time, again, I didn't know any Black people who were doing kind of graduate level PhD work when I was in high school. And one of the things that's really important to me is to help Black people imagine a better future in life for themselves. And so when I first started getting involved in social media, I would just talk about what I was doing so that young Black boys and Black girls could see someone who looked like them doing these things. And that maybe that would allow them to say, I can do it. Because when I was a kid, the only people who I knew who had college degrees, for the most part, were our high school teachers. And maybe like our pa- the pastor at our church had um, a graduate degree, but there wasn't this doctors, lawyers, you know, professionals. And so I grew up in a much more impoverished context. I wanted to be a person that people could reach out and touch, mm. but I didn't actually think it would be anybody beyond my neighborhood. And so all of that's been the part that's been surprising. Yeah, I, I'm hearing that. I'm hearing that. <laughs> so this is all surprising. I'm surprised that I'm on this podcast. <laughs> You are on this radio show and podcast, and we're excited to have you. You know, I really appreciate you describing that. You kind of just demystified it for anybody listening. Yeah. One of the things that happens is that people, they look at someone's destination, and they assume that there was some kind of plan. And then they want to know, how did you execute that plan? For most people, there isn't one particular path to get to a place. I wrote because I really wanted to help people. But I didn't help people with the goal of gaining a platform. And so for me, if I want to give one piece of advice, if there's something in you that won't let you go, maybe then you should give it to the world. Mm. And writing was something that was just a part of who I was. (laughs) 
I want to make this as clear as I possibly can. I had an actual job, did my PhD work all during the day. I would come home, try to be a good husband and a good father, play with my kids. And then at night when everybody else went to bed, I would just write these blog posts. It became eventually opinion pieces. And now I have like a monthly column that condenses about six or seven years of writing that no one read until I got to the place in the New York Times that people obviously um, all over the country and all over the world. You didn't set out to be this like, I'm going to be in the New York Times. I am a black boy from Huntsville, Alabama. We don't dream of the New York Times. Like that's just not even like, I didn't (laughs) didn't have the New York Times growing up as a kid. It wasn't like, I didn't know who the great columnist of the New York Times, you know, I was, I was reading Jet, and Ebony, <laughs> if, you're not, if, you, if you don't get it, if you don't know, then you don't know what I'm talking about. And so for me, the New York Times, I didn't think to dream of it because it was so far outside of my imagination. I write for the New York Times. I live outside of Chicago. But a lot of my stories, a lot of my opinion pieces start in Huntsville, where I grew up. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The reason that I do that, so that people who grew up where I grew up, that our experiences and our formative events in the South are a good template for reflecting upon eternal and national themes. You left Alabama. Your life was filled with and surrounded by the Black community, the Black church. Um, And then you find yourself traveling into another world. Talk to me about an experience in which you had that realization of having to make a choice about how you're going to navigate into a predominantly yeah. white world. Yeah, in some sense, that transition is something I'm not sure I ever recovered from. Because I grew up in Northwest Huntsville that was a, a mostly impoverished part of Alabama. It's red line. There's a black part and there's a white part. And in the black part of Huntsville, there is a intellectual and cultural world where you locate yourself and and people can understand that location. So we had the Nation of Islam and they were actually beyond Nation of Islam. They were, um, I don't know how to describe it, just normal Muslims. Those are kind of too complicated. The W.D. Muhammad community, yeah. Black Muslims who are no longer with the nation. So when I went to Swanee, I'm now going from an all-Black place where these were the options available to you to a school that is about 98% white. And now I'm involved in conversations and issues that I didn't even consider. So a perfect example of this is dealing with issues of racism and religion. In my context, you know, to be a person of faith and to oppose racism were just kind of relatively commonly linked. There was no major controversy. And when I go to the University of the South, I'm now in the context of the post-European Enlightenment modernism, where the more pious you are, the more skeptical you are of issues related to race. And the more secular you are, the more you are into issues of opposing racism and misogyny, all those other things. And that was just really confusing to me because I didn't understand. But it's framed as a secular cause. You come from the Black church where the fight for justice and liberation is baked in to the way you worship, the way that you see the world and you travel to. And for listeners, if you've never been to Sewanee, it is 
like nestled on almost like a mountaintop. <laughs> you are isolated. So when you go from Huntsville, Alabama to Suwannee, not only is this like a cultural shock on some level, but you're also in a yeah. space that you can't actually easily leave. No, the other thing that's really weird, and people have never been there, it's there's both a lot of money and a lot of poverty, but white money and white poverty all mixed together. Yeah. And there is there is a strange racial dynamic that is overlaying the entirety of the campus because University of the South was kind of partly like founded to show you can have kind of an intellectually robust education in the heart of the Confederacy. There was actually a place on campus called the Rebels Rest mm. for like the Confederate rebels. And mm. I would walk past the Rebels Rest as I walked into campus every day. The Confederate flag that had been completely absent in my childhood. The only time I saw a Confederate flag as a kid was when I knew I had warned into a town I shouldn't be in. Mm. I was walking past dorm rooms where the people had the Confederate flag. Mm-hmm. Not that everybody was racist. I don't want to make that idea because Swanee is a very progressive secular space. But there was also like real tangible racism in a way that was like surprising because you just learned to live together. So you'd have, I talk about it in my book, it's like Austin, Texas and um, like talk radio Southerners were like living in the same space. Mm-hmm. And I realized how common it was for them to know each other. So in other words, progressive white people in at the University of the South were kind of used to living with their more conservative, slightly racist neighbors. And it was just part of the life that they lived. But for me, I had never seen either moneyed secular progressives or actually know people who, who owned and put a Confederate flag in their room and would actually argue it's about state's pride. I was like, mm-hmm. wow, I didn't know that you were a real person. The day that I'm getting ready to go to college, I have a friend of mine who's going to go to Middle Tennessee State. He's actually murdered the day before we both were about to leave to go to college. Oh, my God. And so the morning I'm getting up to to um, to come to Swanee, I, um, I see the news story of his passing. Um, they killed him because he had a nice car and they wanted his, his rims and they just shot him and tried to rob him. He was not a drug dealer, just a good kid. And um, wrong place at the wrong time. And so then I arrived on campus. You know, I remember when that happened, I said to myself, I'm not going to college just for me. I'm going to college for all of the black boys and girls who never got a chance to go. And so I drive to Swanee with all of my bags packed and pick the box up with all of my stuff. And I'm walking to my room because it's not air conditioned. The doors are all open so you can see. And I'm walking by. And the first thing that I see against the wall was almost this wall side Confederate flag. And I see the person who's standing there. We just look at each other for a moment. I don't go in and ask him. I just look at him. Mm. And there's this moment where I realize that even though I've gone through all of this struggle to make it to this place, there's still a sense what that Confederate flag represents to me is that I'm an outsider in this place. And so that moment of leaving my hometown with this death weighing heavily upon me and arriving in one of the first images that greet me is that Confederate flag that was on the wall. 
and what it actually meant to my people, which is what made it clear to me that the universities are not the promised land. They're not the place where um, Black people are automatically received and honored and respected. I'm Umbreen Khan, and you're listening to Inspired by Interfaith Voices. I'm talking with author, New Testament scholar, and public theologian, Issa McCulley. His latest book is a memoir, How Far to the Promised Land, One Black Family's Story of Hope and Survival in the American South. As we get back to the conversation, we turn to the controversies today around teaching the history of race in America's public schools. According to the Washington Post and Education Week, 17 states have passed legislation to restrict the way race in American history is taught. For example, two days before school was set to begin in Arkansas, the state education department under Governor Sarah Huckabee Sanders informed schools and students that advanced placement African-American studies would not count towards high school credit. Governor Huckabee Sanders went on national Fox News to explain and defend her decision. We've got to get back to the basics of teaching math, of teaching reading, writing, and American history. And we cannot perpetuate a lie to our students and push this propaganda leftist agenda, teaching our kids to hate America and hate one another. It's one of the reasons that we put into law banning things like indoctrination and CRT. What began as a political attack against uh, discussing race relations and racism and systemic racism has effectively become now public policy in several states around the country. Much of the support validating these movements are coming from conservative evangelical Christian places. You can see that there are different perceptions about race in America. Yeah. Talk to me about what what you see, how you make sense of what's happening. I can say it's in some senses deeply disappointing, um, but not surprising. And what I mean by that is there's a way of looking at American history, Southern American history, as an ongoing theological debate between Black Christians and white Christians about what it means to be made in the image of God. And what I mean by that is that the idea that we have a different understanding of history goes back to the lost cause, right? The idea that the Civil War was rooted in this kind of states' rights, you know, genteel Christian South that was destroyed by the mean secular North that came down and and ruined kind of this, this idyllic relationship between Blacks and whites that was before the Civil War. And so what I wanted to say is like, Martin Luther King writes about in the letter to the Birmingham jail, the white Christian moderate. The letter to the Birmingham jail is a response to seven clergy, one of whom was actually a rabbi, in the South who were opposed to the civil rights movement. The mobs that ran Frederick Douglass from community to community when he was engaging in abolitionist work were often Christians. And so Frederick Douglass even has to say at the end of his biography, he says, I've been so critical of Christianity that people may even think that I'm an enemy of all religion, but I have in mind the Christianity of this land. And so as an African-American, there's a long history of the suppression of our narrative 
In the retelling of the American story that downplays the evils of slavery, one of the things the, abol- the abolitionists had to do is to actually to describe slavery as it actually was, not as the way it was being debated during the time. The same thing about segregation. And so if we then arrive in 2023 and there are Christians who are saying, hey, the problems that we're encountering aren't as bad and we need to redo or suppress or distort history. It's sad that we're still having to do this, but there's a long history. I guess what I want to say is the propaganda and the retelling of American history that downplays anti-Black racism is a reality that Black communities have had to deal with our entire existence. And what we're seeing now is the latest manifestation of it. The real question is, at what point in American history And we've been honest with ourselves about who we are. And I want to say we haven't arrived at that point yet. You wrote recently about the horrific shooting in Jacksonville, Florida. Why was it important for you to write about that and connect it to your own experience? You know, I could, as a full-time job, respond to every unjust murder or killing of an African-American that happens somewhere in this country due to racism. If I did that, that's all that I would do. For my own health, emotional and spiritual health, I sometimes um, let stories go. I, I let the news cycle pass and I don't write on them. But oftentimes I do. I wrote about the Covenant shooting. I wrote about Uvalde. I wrote about um, Buffalo. And there's sometimes where whatever reason, the story won't let me go. The interesting thing about that is that was the first article that I wrote in Huntsville. Mm -hmm. I was flying back to Huntsville for my grandfather's 86th birthday party. Mm -hmm. And when I landed in Huntsville, I, I saw the news and I went home to my hotel room that night and I couldn't sleep. And it was driving back through Huntsville and thinking about the Dollar General that I used to go to as a kid. That's what opens up the story. Um, the black people are killed in the Dollar General. When I was a kid in Huntsville, Alabama, I couldn't afford to go to, it sounds funny, I couldn't afford to go to Walmart or Kmart and get like the slightly better toys. We could afford the Dollar General toys. And that was my reality. And there's so many ways in which in our current country, black people encounter death in unexpected ways and unexpected places a grocery store, out on a run, the Dollar General. And because they're so random, they feel unavoidable and they feel like they touch each one of us. And I feel like it's my responsibility as someone who has this platform of being given the privilege of writing for the New York Times to make sure that our stories are not set aside. And it was really important that you asked me the question earlier about the things that white evangelicalism does, the ways in which they're distorting elements of what Christianity is. And I think that's an important story to tell. But I feel like it's really important for me to center the Black experience and to center the things that deeply resonate in our community. And that was yet another one of those stories that I felt compelled to say, we cannot ignore this and ignore what this particular incident means to me, what it means to other Black people, and what it means about America. Yeah. 
In America, one of the things that I'm hearing more people talk about is that what happened in Jacksonville, what happened in Buffalo, what happened in Charlottesville, these are events that are intended to terrorize. Respond to the person who says, no, this isn't domestic terror, this is mental health. Respond to that question. It's really interesting how this mental health crisis is localized to the United States. But we seem to have a shocking number of anti-Black um, racists who also have access to weapons with also mental health issues. And so one of the things to say is I don't want to deny mental health. I mean, racism is ultimately an illogical perspective. There is something wrong with a way of thinking. But when you isolate it to mental health and then you do things like, okay, who cut the funding for things like mental health treatment? Who gave us access to guns that can do massive amounts of damage? And who uses racial resentment bubbling under the surface for political and economic power? So when you create that kind of context, then of course you're going to um, have these outcomes. But I want to say something like mental health allows us to run from the reality of what this country is actually experiencing right now. Because it is true, the whole point of terrorism, the whole point of terrorism is to say, we know it can't happen to everybody, but you don't know if it could happen to you at any moment. Mm. Even at the height of lynching, right? It wasn't that every Black person could be lynched. It was just that if we lynch enough Black people, it creates a fear that casts a pall over the country. How is it that we have this ongoing mental health crisis that stretches over 200 years of American history that involves acts of excessive and almost demonic murder of Black boys and girls? So did the mental health crisis exist in the 1920s during the Red Summer after World War I? Did the mental health crisis exist in the 1960s when they're killing Black people during the civil rights movement? Or did the mental health crisis just now arise in the 2020s? And why does this mental health crisis in the 2020s look shockingly like the anti-Black racism of the 1950s and the 1920s and the 1880s? So I think that what we can do is we can shrink this thing down to something that doesn't cause us to confront our past. Or we can say what we're experiencing now is a manifestation of a sickness that is yet to be healed or cured in our republic. And I'm convinced that I can say it is a sickness connected to the sickness that's been with us since our founding without denying the fact that there is also a mental health crisis in this country in the same way there's a gun crisis in this country. It's not one, it's all those things. Mm. You wrote this book, began during the pandemic. You referenced your daughter who at the time was four, now she's seven. You are, and correct me if I'm wrong, you are raising multiracial children. Yes. How has all of this, all of this work, all of this thinking, all of this reflection, how has it shaped you as a dad? I realized that we can't necessarily change the past, but we can write a better ending to them. That we can go even into those dark places and find some echoes or hints of light. And for me, it was my way of not um, undoing the things that happened to me, but to say that those things did not have to be the end of the story. And if it shaped me as a parent, it did two things. One is I wanted my children to understand where they came from. 
the, the legacy that brought them um, to where they are. But the other thing that it showed me is when I was a kid, I thought I could be this perfect dad who, who did everything perfectly, who never said the wrong thing. But I'm not my father, but I realized that I'm not the perfect dad. I'm not the perfect dad. I'm going to make mistakes. But I realized now at the end of this book, what I, I didn't need a perfect dad. I need an ordinary dad. And what I want to do now is be an ordinary father to my children. It sounds very simple. I want to give them less to overcome, even in my own brokenness, less for them to heal from so they can become whom God made them to be. So I wanted to give them freedom to say, I was loved, however, imperfectly. It took me so long to, to, to kind of come to grips with these stories. I want to short circuit that process for my children. Mm. We don't want our children to experience what we experienced, but there is a sense of connection to suffering um, that creates a determination and a sense of responsibility to that community that no matter what you say to them, it's hard for them to emulate. So their perspective is distorted, but it's it's distorted precisely because you achieve what you wanted to achieve. And so we don't want them to learn the lessons from the trauma because the trauma is too dangerous and it breaks too many people. But you do sometimes wish that um, that perspective could be there. And you hope that what you do instead is create empathy, you know? And so part of how far to the promised land, again, is me saying, here's where your dad came from. And here's why I feel responsible. Issa McCauley is an associate professor of New Testament at Wheaton College, and he's the author of several titles. His most recent, How Far to the Promised Land, was published on September 12th by Random House. His opinion, writing, and essays appear in the New York Times, The Atlantic, and frequently in Christianity Today. To learn more, links to his biography can be found in this week's show notes. That's all for this week's episode. This week's producer is Kevin McCarthy. Special thanks to our founder, Maureen Fiedler. Musical Sounds by Blue Dot Sessions and Audio Binger. Inspired is a production of Interfaith Voices. Each week's episode is also available as a podcast. You can take us on the go. Subscribe wherever you listen by searching Interfaith Voices. And while you're there, take a moment, leave a rating and a review. Friends, it helps others find us. To learn more about the program, visit interfaithradio.org. And wherever you are, friends, I hope you're well. I hope you are safe. And I hope you stay connected. I'm your host and executive producer, Umbreen Khan.